Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. Divorce Dialogues brings expert guests to the airways to talk through your divorce questions and fill in the gray areas about separating. From thinking about divorce, to how to behave during divorce, to what to do after, this is Divorce Dialogues. Welcome to Sports Dialogue. I'm Catherine Miller. I'm the founder of the Miller Law Group and director of the Center for Understanding and Conflict. And I am on a mission to change how people divorce and help them divorce with dignity. I'm thrilled today that my guest is attorney Aaron Thomas. He began his legal career in 2002 as an in-house staff attorney for Habitat for Humanity International. And he then honed his trial skills from 2004 to 2007 at the DeKalb County Public Defender's Office rising quickly through the ranks, representing hundreds of indigent clients facing both misdemeanors and felonies and winning trials in both state and superior courts. Since 2007, Aaron has practiced family law exclusively, helping secure favorable settlements and verdicts for clients from all walks of life in a wide variety of circumstances. Welcome, Aaron Thomas. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Kevin. You know, and one of the things that we talked about that is really a growing problem in people facing divorce or substance abuse. And I think people wonder if their spouse smokes a lot of weed or, you know, is it takes a lot of prescription drugs maybe improperly or there are other substances involved. Uh, is that a grounds for divorce? Yeah. In most jurisdictions, it will be. Certainly there are no-fault jurisdictions like California where, there are no grounds for divorce other than irreconcilable differences, but in, in most areas, uh, it is going to be grounds for divorce, the habitual addiction or uh, drunkenness of a spouse. Yeah, but as you point out, most states, and uh, you're in Georgia, and I'm in New York, at least in New York, it's, it's not that hard to get divorced anymore. It used to be really not that easy, but these days it's not that hard sure. to get divorced, even if you're just unhappy. Is, is that true in Georgia, too? Yes. Yeah. So in in Georgia, even if you have other grounds for divorce, most of the time you're still going to fall under irreconcilable differences. Uh, sometimes there's a, a psychological or a, an emotional element that gets involved that makes someone want to include these other grounds for divorce. But uh, like you said, it, it's not that difficult to get a divorce uh, without having those grounds. Right. So the substance abuse really comes into the finer points of the divorce case, not so much whether or not someone can get a divorce, but what happens inside that divorce proceeding with regard to custody, division of assets, you know, and, and, and spousal or child support going forward. Is that right? Absolutely, yeah. The devil is always going to be in the details, and, and substance abuse can certainly impact uh, issues, you know, from custody to equitable division and the like. So how can it affect custody? Because I think that a lot of people who are married to people who have substance abuse problems worry, and maybe rightly so, about their children's well-being when they're with a parent with a substance abuse problem. What do you What do you say to those people? Well, I think I think for those individuals, I think that they're I think that they're right to be concerned. You know, substance abuse is an issue generally in our country, but certainly in marriages, alcoholism or drug addiction devastates a lot of marriages, devastates families. It can have a, a huge negative impact on the children. And judges that are making a determination on custody 
in no matter what jurisdiction you're in, have to look out for, number one, what is in the best interest of the children. And if it is going to impact the parent parenting ability, uh, their ability to function, um, them overseeing the, the child's education, getting them from place to place, certainly something like drug addiction or habitual drunkenness, whether that's prescription pills or uh, illegal drugs, those types of things are going to come into play. And a parent who is suffering from serious addiction issues is going to be at a serious disadvantage when it comes to determining what custody is going to look like. And what about the other elements of the divorce? How does how does substance abuse impact the division of assets or ongoing support? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a good question. I think a lot of people wonder whether drug addiction uh, is going to or any kind of substance abuse is going to impact the division of assets. So for most states, uh, including Georgia and New York, where there are equitable division states, the court, the judge has the authority to divide the assets and debt, something other than 50-50, taking into account kind of the conduct of the parties or other considerations. And yeah, substance abuse can come into play. I mean, one, one example would be if a significant amount of marital funds, of marital money has gone towards funding an addiction. It's not difficult to imagine a judge deciding that that spouse deserves to have a lesser share of the assets when all is said and done. Aaron Thomas, is it is it punitive or is it a matter of contribution? So meaning, is a judge looking at someone who is actively abusing some substance, uh, you know, drinking, drugs, legal or illegal, saying, you know, you're a bad person, you know, naughty you, I'm going to give you less than half because of this bad behavior, or are they saying, you know what, because of this history, substance abuse, you have not contributed to the marriage in an equal way, and therefore I'm going to give you less than half. And maybe I'm dancing angels on the head of a pen here, and it really makes no difference to the person, but I'm just curious about that. No, 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 I I think that's interesting. Um, I think some litigants would probably feel as though it's punitive. Sure. Um, And certainly, you probably know as well as I do, you go from courtroom to the courtroom or from judge to judge, and they may have different things that they say from the bench. But I think for the most part, the focus is more going to be on uh, contribution to assets. I mean, you imagine a couple where one spouse is working hard to put food on the table and, and pay the bills for the family, and the other spouse is not able to hold it together uh, due to a drug addiction, is, is not contributing their fair share to the household bill. Certainly, it'd be within a judge's authority to say, look, the the other spouse has been the one supporting the family. They're the one paying down the mortgage and, and putting money in the bank. What's going to be fair, what's going to be equitable is to give that spouse uh, a larger share of, of what, frankly, they contributed during the marriage. That makes a lot of sense because we distinguish a situation. Well, let's say you have a very productive person who works throughout the marriage, man or woman, creates assets, supports the family, has a back injury, becomes addicted to some painkiller and can't seem to kick the habit, you know, within 12 months. I mean, that would be a completely different situation. That person, it sounds like, in your view, wouldn't be penalized for having this addiction, even if they were still actively using. 
Oh, yeah, I, I, I agree with you, Catherine. In, in that type of scenario, I think, you know, the court's going to weigh all of the circumstances, but in, in that type of scenario where someone's been contributing to the marital state over the course of the marriage and, you know, maybe the, the addiction represents a small fraction of the relationship, it's unlikely that they're going to, to penalize them with a you know much lesser share of, of the marital estate, in my view, in my experience. So let me ask you this, Aaron Thomas. You worked in the public defender's office, and you probably had clients at the time. I'm not asking you to reveal any attorney-client privilege, but you probably had some in that situation who had substance abuse problems. Is that accurate? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you probably, as a as a family lawyer, matrimonial lawyer, also have had clients who suffer from substance abuse. And and I'm wondering, is there a difference in terms of the way you, as an attorney, handle those cases when you're dealing with someone who really may not be able to help as much, help your you as an attorney work on their case and present their best face? Is there is there a difference there or, or not? I think that, you know, in terms of a difference between someone who has uh, a drug addiction or a substance abuse issue and someone that doesn't, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we as attorneys, you know, we are counselors. I think our, you know, where our job begins and ends can become blurry at times, but, you know, we meet our clients where we are and we try to leave them in a better place than, than where we found them. So both of the public defender's office and you know, in family law, when I've dealt with individuals who have substance abuse issues and they're my clients, you know, we're trying to get them to a place where they can be a functioning member of society, where they can show a court that they've overcome their addiction or they're working to overcome their addiction when it comes to someone facing criminal charges. And then with someone in family law, if they're trying to reestablish a relationship with their children, um, if they're trying to, you know, get in a position where they can, you know, show the court that they deserve, you know, a share of the marital estate without reduction, I think that it's our it's our duty to try to find the resources, uh, which there are plenty out there that can help them overcome their drug addiction. I think a lot of times when it, you know, especially in a custody case, the court's going to want to see some improvement on their part before they allow a parent to have unsupervised. Uh, visitation or parenting time with their kids if they've been suffering from drug addiction. Yeah, and I do want to talk about what improvement people can do, but first I want to remind our listeners that you're listening to Divorce Dialogues. We're here on WVOX 1460 AM, alternate Wednesdays from 5 to 5.30, or perhaps you're listening on the podcast, which is available on all podcast sites as well as on the podcast website, divorcedialogues.com. I'm Catherine Miller, and I'm speaking with Aaron Thomas, and we're speaking about substance abuse and divorce, and I really want to distinguish the difference of somebody actively using, showing no indication of improvement versus someone who's really trying to deal with the problem, either they're in rehab or they're going to meetings of some kind, and they're really struggling to get better or are actually in recovery. Are there shades of gray in those areas? You know, every time you see a celebrity of some sort, you know, get into trouble, especially some kind of family issue or maybe inappropriate behavior, you know, whoop, they off they go to rehab, you know, and it seems like, <laughs> like that's the, you know, the way they're spinning it. Oh, well, you know, yeah, I've had a problem and I'm sick and now I'm going to deal with it by going in to get some kind of treatment. And so what is the impact of that on a divorce case and specifically with regard to, you know, custody? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that you know, judges have a difficult job 
maybe distinguishing between that person who is just putting on a face or like they go into rehab to try to spin the situation in their favor and someone that is truly remorseful, truly trying to turn a page. Certainly, you know, someone facing potentially the loss of parenting time with their kids, that can serve by itself as a wake-up call and, and scare someone into uh, getting some help. And I think there's also a trend nationwide that we, that we have to consider where, you know, someone who's suffering an addiction, it's looked at today more as an illness rather than, you know, this is just a criminal, this is just a derelict who needs to be punished. I think now there's a trend, uh, and many courts today have, have drug courts or drug divisions where the emphasis is less on punishment and more on rehabilitation. So, and we as attorneys, you know, obviously if we can, if we can both help our clients get more time with their children as well as treat their addiction at the same time, that would seem to be a win-win. Yeah, and I think that's really an interesting point because I think in some ways it's easier I think, to represent the person who has the addiction, because in that place, you can help influence them and guide them to resources and institutions and ways that these problems can be treated, where when you represent the spouse of that person, all you can do is sort of jump up and down like Rumpelstiltskin and say, something needs to change. <laughs> but you know, usually right. at that point, the spouse has been saying that for years, right? And to have their attorney say it just falls more on deaf ears. Right, right, right. And I, I think, I mean, I think that's a, I think that's a great point that it is tougher. You know, the person who's, who's been the addict, you know, in some respects, they may have, they may have nowhere to go from up. And, you know, when I have a client and the, the spouse of my client is the one with addiction problems, we've got a, a difficult situation. You know, a judge is not going to want to sever the ties between a child and a parent unless the circumstances are so extreme, unless the addicted parent is so far gone that it's just, it's not in the children's best interest to ever have a relationship with that parent. And I think that's going to be rare. I and so tell. it can be frustrating for the spouse of the addict to say, look, they've shown that they're not, that they're unable to parent effectively. And meanwhile, the court is going to give them a chance to prove that they deserve a chance to be in their children's lives. I mean, it's tough. When does an addiction become so bad that you, you sever the parent-child relationship? Yeah, that's a question, I think, for, for better people than I, <laughs> or maybe a higher power, because I think that is a really, really tough question, and, and certainly hard to answer in generalities, right? Because kids deserve to have their parents sure. in their lives, and whether or not those parents are acting in their best way or not, but if it's going to hurt them, then there needs to be some guidelines in there for that, and that's really tough to figure out where that is. So, Aaron Thompson, during the, the marriage that many years usually pass, at least that's my experience, many years pass before the person who is not the addict chooses to leave. And there's often a reason for that and a dynamic between the couple. So it's been kind of a family secret or not so maybe an open secret with the neighbors and larger family but in the divorce, it can become public, right? And and these public allegations can really harm not just the, the addict, but the whole family in terms of employers finding out and other kinds of things like that. So how do you think families who are going through this can protect themselves from 
unwanted consequences. Yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, it is, it's certainly a delicate situation often. And back to your earlier point, um, it can be extremely tough on the spouse of the addict. Um, because in one situation, you need that, you need that addict ability to, to play a role in the children's lives. You may need their help physically transporting children, watching the children. You may need that parent contribution financially. But at the same time, if you let the court know, if you put it in public record, if you put it in motions that you, that you file with the court, um, that this person has a drug addiction, there's the risk of other people finding out. Someone could lose their job over it. And then you've got to balance, you know, what's more important, letting, letting the court know the extent of the allegations you're making against the addicted spouse or making sure that spouse has the funds to be able to contribute to your children's needs. Again, another another really difficult question that we kind of just deal with on a case by case basis, but it probably comes down to the level of addiction and you know the amount of help that's needed. Yes, and I think that for the spouse, it often comes down to a level of rage. How this I'm finally saying no more. My experience is that there's an emotional desire to just tell the world I've been suffering, and yet that's just often ill advised. So it is really a challenge to try to find a way through there that makes sense for all people. I'm Catherine Miller, and you're listening to Divorce Dialogues here on WVOX 1460 AM every other Wednesday from 5 to 5.30 and also available as a podcast. And I'm talking today with Aaron Thomas about substance abuse and divorce. And Aaron, if people are interested in learning more about you or more about this topic, how can they reach you? Yes, I can be found online at www.aaronthomaslaw.com. Uh, the name is A-A-R-O-N, last name Thomas, T-H-O-M-A-S, aaronthomaslaw.com. And that is the easiest way to uh, keep up with uh, my firm and the work we're doing. And we practice here in Atlanta, Georgia. Thank you for that. I'm sure that there'll be listeners who are interested in contacting you and learning more about this really, really challenging topic. You know, one thing that we haven't talked about is the impact on substance abuse on child support and maintenance or alimony. And how does that impact the situation? I think that drug addiction can impact child support and possibly alimony as well, certainly to the extent that it impacts uh, a parent's uh, ability to earn income. So, for example, if the addicted parent is the parent that needs to pay child support because the non-addict spouse has custody of the children, that parent could say, well, I can't work. You know, I've got this addiction. I've got a problem. Or maybe they haven't been able to hold down a job. And in my experience, uh, judges are extremely unlikely to absolve that parent of financial responsibility to pay some support for their children simply because they, they can't hold down a job because of drug addiction. What judges, in my experience, usually do is they impute income or they assume an amount of income that that parent can earn or to say that they have the ability to earn that amount and they base child support on that. When it comes to alimony, it could be kind of a similar thing where, you know, normally a dependent spouse, a financially dependent spouse would be eligible to receive some alimony after the marriage. But if they're only dependent because of their drug addiction, in my experience at least, uh, the judge is not very likely to have a lot of sympathy. Uh, and, and I think there's also the concern that awarding an addicted spouse some kind of monetary support 
could have the unintended consequence of fueling that addiction, giving the giving them the funds to to further buy drugs or have alcohol or not have to hold down a job. So uh, it can certainly impact child support and alimony in those types of ways. Yeah, I think you said a lot there, and so I want to split it up a little bit because but think about on the, when you talk about imputing income, I mean, that's a big word, but it basically means that a judge can say that I'm going to base support based on the amount of money you should be making, even though you're not making it because you're an addict, right? Exactly. Exactly. And so in some ways, though, you just can't get blood from a stone. I mean, if this person is really suffering from a disease and they had cancer and they couldn't work because they had cancer, the judge wouldn't. It would be very unlikely, in my opinion, maybe you, you see this differently, to impute income to that person because they were suffering from cancer. Do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's valid. Yeah. So there is a kind of contradiction, right? So you earlier spoke about the trend toward treating addiction as a disease, but there still is a kind of a punitiveness or can be if it feels like, and it often does, I think, feel to the judge or, you know, to other people, like this is the fault of the person who is suffering from the disease of addiction. I think that's true. I think there's an element of that. It will probably vary from judge to judge as their particular beliefs. Are. I think a parent who has an addiction problem but is actively going to rehab, I think a judge is likely to be more lenient with that parent when it comes to paying child support. I think a parent who has had multiple chances at rehab, has had multiple opportunities and resources provided to them to get clean and simply refuses to do so or hold down a job, I think that's where you're more likely to see a judge come down and say, all right, I'm going to impute a certain amount of income and you've just got to come up with the money to pay your child support. Yeah, so that's interesting. To the extent that the person is treating their disease, the court is likely, no one can guarantee anything, but likely to see that person with more compassion and more empathy and treat them more gently if than if someone who's just blatantly ignoring the impact of their addiction on themselves and their family. I think that's right. That's been my experience, at least. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of makes sense. And with regard to the other, having an addicted spouse seeking support, it's sort of like what we're told about, you know, giving money to people on the street, right? You, you don't want to fuel an addiction, but you do want to support the person. And I think the court is limited in the ways that they can help a person survive, you know, have a good place to live and eat and clothes that they need to work and all of those things and also try to keep the money away from the substance abuse, it it seems like there could be more nuanced ways of dealing with with that than the tools that are in a judge's hands. What do you think about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I don't envy uh, judges in these difficult positions. In some respects, it's easier to be on, on our side of the bench arguing the case. You know, I have seen, for example, uh, a judge, you know, order the, the spouse who has resources to pay for the addicted spouse's uh, rehabilitation. And I think that was seen by this particular judge as a way to provide some kind of support, but in a positive manner without putting cash in an addict's hand. And certainly it's going to be, I think, you know, detailed circumstance dependent based on, you know, each individual case. Yeah. Um, and some judges, I think, are going to be more likely to, to take a creative route than others. 
So, Aaron Thomas, we have less than a minute left, but I would like you to say, what is your advice if you or someone is listening out there who has an addictive spouse? What's the first thing they should think about doing? I think trying to trying to uh, get that individual help. I mean, at the end of the day, especially if you've got children, you've got a family, um, getting someone off of drugs and having them clean is going to be the best result for everyone. Um, and if not, you should you should also speak to a qualified attorney in your area. All right. I think that's great advice, Aaron Thomas. Thank you so much for being our guest on Divorce Dialogues. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure was mine.